Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What is going on, everyone? I want to welcome y'all back to the show. You've probably noticed a little bit of a switch up, but if not, let me explain. So we've gone from the OG name of the HuntStand podcast to now being dubbed Hunt Stands Make Your Mark podcast. Some of y'all might be wondering, why the change, Will? Well, let me tell y'all. I'm all about carving out your own path and leaving your mark. So we're still going to be focused on the outdoors. And don't worry, this is still going to be your hunting and outdoor podcast in place for all those things. So we're just not going to stick to the usual hunting talks, tips, and tactics week after week after week, episode after episode. We're still going to have some of that stuff. Still going to have Field Note Fridays. We're going to have the mini series and all that good stuff. So you're still going to have relevant tips and tactics podcast episodes to come to. But I want to focus on a little bit more. We're going to be discovering insights and experiences on relevant topics within the industry from accomplished individuals in the outdoor space. So it's going to be a new vibe, and I'm thrilled to have you along for the ride. So welcome to the next chapter of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. I love each and every one of these episodes and the guests that we get on here. If you're new or a longtime listener, don't forget you might be listening but not subscribed. We have some awesome guests coming on in the future, so if you don't want to miss out on those, when they go live, and if you want to support the show, press subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast is powered by, you guessed it, HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. HuntStand's powerful mapping features and revolutionary hunting tools will give you the confidence and knowledge for a safe and successful hunt. There's three different tiers that you can choose from. We've got a free version, and then you've got Pro and Pro Whitetail. Pro will give you access to premium map layers and hunting tools in the United States and Canada, where Pro Whitetail includes all HuntStand Pro features plus powerful tools made specifically for whitetail hunters. If you want to check it out, download HuntStand today. Today's podcast is brought to you by Savage Arms. 
Savage Arms is five generations of craftspeople using stripped back, supercharged American ingenuity to make the most reliable and accurate modern high performance firearms. To learn more, head to savagearms.com. On today's show, we have the privilege of welcoming Corey Mason, a distinguished leader in the realm of conservation and the CEO of Dallas Safari Club and DSC Foundation. With a wealth of experience garnered over a 16-year career at the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, Corey has held pivotal roles, including regional director and management area biologist. As a published author and certified wildlife biologist, he brings a profound understanding of wildlife management to the table. Corey's influence extends beyond borders, actively engaging with federal and international delegations, policymakers, and conservation organizations. Currently serving on prominent boards such as the Hunting and Shooting Sports Conservation Council and the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, Corey is a committed advocate for sustainable conservation practices. Join us in welcoming Corey Mason, a true champion for responsible resource use and preservation. Well, there's no problem. Actually, you're a, a part of a new vibe or change that I have going on for the Hunt Stand podcast. It's actually no longer the Hunt Stand podcast. We've changed it up a little bit. Uh, some of the listeners may or may not have caught on or heard this yet, but I've changed it to Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. So it's still Hunt Stand's podcast, but we just changed it up a little bit. Um, I like that. And thank you. We We decided to change it up a little bit this year, but... Before we get into today's topic, we're going to be talking conservation and passing things on from one generation to the next. But before we get into that, I want you to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, Corey. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, again, thanks for having me, Will. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Uh, yeah, conservation is is my background. Uh, I grew up in farm and ranching community. Grandparents that uh, farmed and ranch, so grew up with a really close and intimate sort of you know land connection and land ethic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that resulted in me pursuing both uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees in wildlife conservation um, and uh, and then spent a little time uh, guiding for a couple of years before I went to work uh, postgraduate school uh, for Texas Parks and Wildlife. I uh, worked for them for a little over 16 years in various roles from on the ground field biologists, uh, managing state lands, public hunting programs, research programs, um, and then working with private landowners to fulfill their management objectives, yep. uh, particularly in a state like Texas that's, you know, so largely privately owned. It's it's really the key to natural mm-hmm. resource management in the state. And had the privilege from there working really closely with the Fish and Wildlife Service on a lot of national strategic documents associated with migratory birds um, and uh, even some with Mexico. And um, and then spent the last roughly five years of my career with Parks and Wildlife as a regional director for the Wildlife Division. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, work with lots of conservation organizations, partnerships from game species, non-game species, really the full gamut. Um, and uh, so it's it's really the thread that binds me together, that's for sure. I think it binds us all together, man. Yeah, it, it, it really should. does. Well, uh, love the history, man. I mean, tell us how how did you find yourself at DSC? 
Yeah, so 2017, uh, I'd worked for the state for about 16 years, and we'll say my my peers and and colleagues there, it, it, of course, Texas Parks and Wildlife and all the states that I had, the Canadian provinces that I had the privilege of working with, just the finest people in the world. They're doing the right things for the right reasons yep. uh, and uh, really believe in natural resource management in its purity. Uh, and uh, just just great folks, great mm-hmm. peers. Um that was kind of at a point in my career, again, 16 years in, that I was kind of looking to maybe turn the page, uh, looking at uh, maybe stepping outside of uh, government, if you will, for just a little bit of time. And, yeah. and I looked around and, you know, there, there's a lot of great conservation organizations, species-specific conservation organizations, and some that just broadly approach conservation issues at North America and an international scale. And uh, having a lot of knowledge, actually had worked with DSC on a couple of grant projects in the mm-hmm. past. Uh, been in a convention attendee for years, you know, the guy on the door just did ooh and all and and yep. booking hunts and buying things and really enjoyed that experience. And so uh, really made contact with DSC and was made aware that there was a executive director position available at the time. <clears throat> and through a series of, man, I don't know, it was a gauntlet, uh, five or six interviews and wow. face-to-face and, and webinars and calls and all these things and, and ended up uh, getting the call from DSC that they said, hey, we want you to join the team. And and I was glad to do so and, and served in that role for a couple of years. And then uh, the board the board then appointed me as CEO over DSC and DSC Foundation. And so really have the privilege of representing DSC and our 20 plus thousand members all over the world and uh, all the international forums and positions. And a lot of my focus is, of course, on international policy that ultimately mm-hmm. then directly determines you know, our advocacy efforts and travel all over the world and, you know, at these bodies like CITES that determine international policy that then, of course, moves to the national level, then ultimately to the state level many times. So, wow. yeah, I really enjoy my time. Man, that sounds way above my head, but things that I'm eager <laughs> to learn about. So can you share with the share with all the listeners out there, you know, what are some of the missions or mission, the main mission and goals of Dallas Safari Club? Tell us about that. Yeah, we really have three core mission tenets, and the number one is conservation, mm-hmm. uh, and that in the, in the broadest sense can mean lots of things, all the way down to very specific projects. You know, conservation is anything from working with game and fish agencies on specific projects, like uh, projects we're working right now with Wild Sheep Foundation on in Mexico. You know, putting sheep literally back on the mountain with them, and wow. formerly occupied ranges where they've been, uh, you know, where they they lost habitat, mm-hmm. um, and so working in British Columbia on grizzly bear issues um, and uh, working on specific habitat projects, guzzler projects, habitat restoration projects, anti-poaching projects, working in Asia on the mountain ungulate species. Um, and uh, and then conservation, number one. Number two, education. Yeah. Uh, and that can be, it's really largely focused these days in which the emphasis in which I've really moved is, is towards educating the general public. And I should say kind of bracketed in big brackets uh, the voting public. Um, and that doesn't mean necessarily that we're trying to turn everyone into hunters, but it means we're trying to educate them on the value of conservation through hunting. Uh, the, the value that legal regulated hunting plays in conservation of both habitats and species and Mm -hmm. species, of course, means game and non-game species, uh, birds, mammals, reptiles, everything, of course, when habitats are conserved. And, And then the last core mission tenant is advocacy. And of course, then that is really taken the other side of educating the voting public and moving that to educating elected officials. 
owner. And so educating our elected officials on, uh, sorry, my daughter's. <laughs> that's all right, man. That's, that's part of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, educating our uh, elected officials on the need. Let me stop the dog here. <laughs> no, you're good. So back to back to advocacy here. Am I unmuted now? There we go. Yep. Uh, back to advocacy. That is really us spending our efforts on educating elected officials. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's obviously largely focused in North America, uh, but you know a little bit of that could probably be as well tied a little bit to our again international policy efforts and engagement. Yeah. And, international bodies like CITES and IUCN as well, where we really move that conservation through hunting message forward. Uh, but we have a full-time government affairs director in Washington, D.C. In fact, I'll be in Washington in a couple of weeks yep. uh, working with uh, Natural Resource Committee staff on on these issues. So, You know, I, I want to ask you a question on something you talked about earlier, and that's uh, educating the voting population. And I don't mean to hit off with a con, uh, pretty hot topic right now or recently has been the, I guess you could say the reintroduction of wolves in Colorado. And it seemed like there was a fairly large part of Colorado. I mean, particularly, you know, your guys, outfitters, hunters, ranchers, all those that were against it. But then you have your voting population, which is those big, heavily dense, uh, densely populated areas that, I felt like they weren't as well educated on it. And so now you had this reintroduction of wolves. I mean, I guess, A, where's kind of DSC stance on that? I mean, and is that where y'all kind of see the education of the voting population has got to happen so things like that don't happen again? Or or what's your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great example of uh, ballot box biology gone bad. Yeah. Uh, meaning, you know, the Game and Fish Department, of course, were not involved in that decision. Of course, they would not have recommended that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was no consultation to stakeholders, stakeholders meaning uh, the hunting public and maybe more specifically, meaning like the rural ag producers. Yeah. Uh, rather, that ballot initiative was carried based on petition that gathered enough signatures to make it to a ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then specifically, the voting public that showed up, again, not to create a division, but this division does naturally exist and is very real of rural versus urban. Yeah. This was an urban vote uh, that carried by people that will never interact or probably ever see a wolf now put at the burden of the rural citizen uh, that will deal with uh, the interaction that may or may not ever occur, but certainly from the livestock producer and Mm -hmm. those that choose to go and participate in the out of doors. Again, this isn't something that was based on biology, which is so unfortunate. Uh, So these are, these are really the great examples of an uneducated public uh, that have a desire to sort of work from a from a Disney theme narrative. Uh, it's it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Yeah, that was such a good term that you used right there. Just that Disney theme. I mean, and I guess case in point, in that would be if you go and look at the footage and videos of the releasing of these wolves, you can see like all these uh, parks and wildlife agents that are kind of standing there at the side that you can just kind of see this look on their face that they're like man, I can't believe we're doing this. And then you have a very small select group of other people there that are just happy about it. It's just like, gosh, I hope this does. I hope this doesn't go bad. Cause I'm a person that loves to enjoy Colorado. I mean, yeah. obviously from a hunting perspective, but also a recreational perspective group going there in the summers with family, taking the Jeep trails. And it's like, man, I just hope this just doesn't, uh, I hope these wolves just don't spread like wildfire and cause massive issues for, a large group of people 
that just enjoy Colorado from, <laughs> I mean, think about the recreational people too, you know, that like going up there and hiking, uh, man, well, I, I'm glad that DSC is taking the stance to educate the voting population to help mitigate those things, hopefully more in the future. Um, you know, and that's where kind of this whole bridge, or I guess you could say just kind of this intersection of hunting and conservation can kind of be controversial, i.e. the whole wolf situation. Um, when y'all see things like this happen, how do y'all navigate and address, you know, different perceptions around these types of things? That's a great question. You know, if we use the, the Colorado example, or we look at like Oregon, you know, ballot yeah. initiatives associated with trying to just simply ban hunting in its totality. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you look at the banning of grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia, not by the management authorities, but rather by the Green Party government that comes in and says, we don't believe that a modern society should hunt grizzly bears, things like that, you know, where, again, there's not science behind it. And so science can't argue that discussion, rather, it has to come from a personal standpoint. And then science comes from the, from the side or the back and reinforces the need for that for co habitat conservation. And so we're fortunate that we work really kind of as a force multiplier with lots of organizations, again, across North America and across the world. And, mm -hmm. and by that, I mean, we have a huge network of people that we work with, meaning, of course, uh, congressional forums, working with partners like Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and many others. Of course, our key conservation partners, clearly many of the species groups, um, Cattle Raisers Association, et cetera, very powerful and very influential and very effective organizations and groups. Um, and we have a lot of coalitions that we've built in which when these kind of things happen, of course, the Colorado thing, by the time it made it to that ballot, that was done. Unfortunately, that was, they had the votes, they had the people coming in between Boulder and Denver and those kind of things. And it, yeah. it, it carried the vote. Um, and, uh, but nonetheless, um, so, so we mobilize at that state level, if it's one of these particular cases, um, and work with those stakeholder groups. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll serve as, as someone that leads the effort or someone that, you know, just helps rally and supports if it's financially support, if it's working through elected officials. Uh, and again, these ballot initiatives are very different than something that comes about through a state game and fish commission or even a state level legislature. Uh, those are honestly far easier to deal with uh, because we have the ability to have face time with a state representative or certainly a national representative, whatever it might be, depending on the scale of the issue. These ballot initiatives, and of course, unfortunately, the animal rights organizations know how effective they can be, right? Uh, which they're obviously quite dangerous, like we just we see yeah. here. So, you know, it really involves engaging uh, engaging the public and trying to get out and communicate, um, and not to switch topics on you, but it's very relevant. This morning we had calls in France and Belgium right now, again across the pond, uh, but are working to ban importation of Appendix One and Appendix Two species at CITES. Uh, meaning traditionally think a lot of the African species and yeah. some of the Asian mountain ungulates for those species, the lions, et cetera. Uh, but again, not based on emotion, based on rather on a humane society survey that asks these bastardized questions like, you know, do you believe that you should bring back parts from critically endangered species? I mean, things like that that are not objective questions. Mm -hmm. And so these kind of things are happening all over the world. So it's critically important that these organizations engage. This episode is brought to you by Matthews Archery. By far, my new favorite bow is the Matthews Lift 33. After the Phase 4, I really didn't know how much better Matthews could make their bows, especially after the new RPD system, the bridge lock. I just didn't know how they could do it, but once they sent me the lift and I put this thing in my hand, 
and got it set to where I wanted and shot that first arrow, I was amazed. I just could not believe how dead in the hand this bow is, the smooth draw, and how much lighter this aluminum bow is compared to the majority of the carbon bows on the market. So if you're interested in a lighter, faster, and quieter bow, make sure you check out the Matthews Lift. Head to matthewsinc.com. Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast is brought to you by Yamaha Outdoors. To check out Yamaha's proven lineup of side-by-sides, ATVs, and off-road vehicles, head to yamahamotorsports.com. That, I mean, it's, it's so true. And I mean, it. With, question I want to ask you on this is, you know, these decisions, like you said, don't come from science. It's kind of like this. It's, it's an opinionated, this is how I feel, this is how it should be uh, argument. And I think that's where we also kind of get into the same argument of folks that say, oh, well, conservation can be achieved without hunting. How do y'all counter that perspective? You know, I love that question. Um, I had that question at a forum in 2019 mm-hmm. uh, and uh, literally just completely stopped the group. Um, and I referred all the way back to 1937 as an important benchmark in conservation. In 1937, the Wildlife Restoration Act was introduced, known as Pittman-Robertson nowadays. Yep. It resulted in billions and billions of dollars. Last year alone, $1 billion returned to game and fish agencies for putting conservation on the ground. As a result, as you well know, the sale of hunting and shooting related products. Uh, so you use that as a benchmark and then you take that one step further and you say that game and fish agencies are funded 70 plus percent on the backs of sportsmen with PR and then the sale of hunting and fishing license and associated stamps, et cetera. So the biologist in which I was that worked for game and fish agency, when my phone rang and a landowner called and said, hey, Corey, I'd like you to come out and give me recommendations on everything from white tail deer management mm-hmm. to turkey management to waterfowl wetland management to things like, hey, I'm looking at putting prescribed fire on the ground or implementing rotational grazing systems or keeping cattle out of riparian areas or monarch butterflies, everything in between. Yeah, I had a, a phone that rang, a truck to get in, a computer to use, and the ability to meet with that landowner, write a management plan and recommendation because I hunter funded that. Um, conservation happens on the ground on the backs of hunters it has for a hundred years and will continue to do so because of that. And this is, this is where I want to get into the topic of a younger generation coming in and understanding that because I myself just learned that two years ago, maybe, um, you know, I just grew up enjoying hunting, going to the outdoors and, enjoying all these things that essentially your generation and older generations have helped foster and grow and manage so the younger generation can continue to enjoy that. And I don't think it's been until late that I've kind of had this sense of urgency of like, man, who's going to fight the good fight when y'all are done fighting? You know, when it comes time for y'all to hang up the hat and uh, pass it on, who's going to do that? And that's where I'm starting to feel that sense of urgency. Like I need to learn more, know more, get involved more to fight the good fight. So when it does come time for you to hang that hat up, it's easy to pass the torch. And so that's where I kind of want to get into how DSC is inspiring to help engage this younger generation to actively participate in some of these conservation efforts. 
Yeah, I must say there's three key ways that we're going to touch on that. We are touching on that. And the first is going to be probably something you're not going to expect. Uh, the first is I have the privilege of working really closely with a lot of academic institutions, universities specifically, and those that have mm -hmm. um, institutions or I should say departments associated with uh, wildlife conservation in no. broad sense and in the strictest sense. And the reason that's relevant is because those programs are the programs in which result and will turn out the next generation of leaders at a conservation organization like DSC or the next you know, game and fish department biologists in Tennessee or Nevada or Texas or Alaska, wherever it might be. Yeah. And one of the things that we see there, and I saw it towards the back end of my time with Parks and Wildlife, and we worked very strategically to address that, is, and this isn't necessarily wrong, but it brings a different paradigm in, is that the students that are coming into these universities now, very few or a small percentage of them actually were raised hunting or were raised on a farm and ranch. And so they, they don't understand Yes. How to turn a tractor on, uh, what, you know, balancing livestock management and wildlife management looks like. Yes. Um, and they don't understand a lot of these basic principles, mm -hmm. uh, in which are critically important to managing the land, relating to someone that manages the land, and then being able to advocate on behalf of fish and wildlife. You know, like, I have a, uh, a cr not crazy story, but I have a story on this. Um, Brian Murphy, who you know on our team well-known yep. across the whitetail world uh, before his time at uh, I think it was QDMA at the time, or maybe when he was at university of Georgia, my timeline's a little off, but recently we did a filming of a two part hunt stand original film. That's going to be coming out this summer. And it's speaking on essentially the origins of whitetail management that you see across most of the nation now and how it stems from research management practices, everything that was done in South Texas, you know, essentially 60s and 70s, um, how it was kind of the pilot light for management. Well, he had a young lady that came into his office that picked him as an intern leader. I guess it was something with uh, some study that she wanted to get into. What you were just talking about, she wanted to get into wildlife management, but she wanted to go and start a uh, something involved with jaguars, basically a zoo for jaguars because she had this environmental perspective on things. And Brian was like, well, why did you pick me as your intern leader? And she said, well, you're leading a, a nonprofit at QDMA at the time. And I want to learn how to run my own nonprofit. Long story short, she's now down at Texas A&M Kingsville one of the lead leaders of the whitetail program down there. And she's a bona fide killer hunter turned from wanting to be a Jaguar nonprofit person to this. I mean, it was pretty cool to see that Brian led that and helping that transformation. Then hearing you talk about it now, it's just kind of like full circle for me. Yeah. It's a very real thing, you know, having the opportunity to interview for and entertainment roughly 60 there in East Texas or the Eastern part of the state. And, yeah. you know, interviewing folks and, and asking them questions about, you know, livestock interaction and the use of equipment and, you know, that they've never driven a four wheel or know how to back a trailer. Don't a lot of these things that, uh, you know, that, that are essential skills and they certainly don't understand the hunter's role in conservation, yeah. you know, to be able to advocate on that behalf. And it's, it's very real. Uh, but, to sort of play off your story, uh, you know, there are folks like A&M Kingsville, um, uh, obviously A&M proper, Roel Lopez there, that's doing a tremendous job of bringing 
that integration of field-based science into the program at, at wildlife at Texas A&M University in the Department of Range and Wildlife Sciences. And so they're making to ensure that those wildlife professionals are well-trained in understanding the role that hunting plays in wildlife conservation. And mm -hmm. there are other universities, obviously, that do a great job as well, many great universities. But working to address that sort of deficiency there are the students that are coming in and understanding hunting. And so we're supporting a number of programs that help engage them directly in the field, giving them opportunities to shoot and to hunt and to be in the field and to financially support those opportunities is something that we're doing. Um, and then also through the DSC Foundation, we're supporting a number of grants that directly get, I'm gonna say youth, and that's obviously a broad term, but think maybe kind of uh, junior high, high school as well, that mm -hmm. directly get you know kids out of school. I've never been a huge advocate to just spend a ton of money to take 13 kids out and there's no return, there's no follow-up, they'll never have the opportunity to get back out again. So yeah. I think those are kind of, they're great heartfelt spins, but they're really dead end from a return on the investment. Yeah. But rather there's some really good programs that then rather mentor them and the parent and get them outdoors. You know, the sort of mm -hmm. the, you know, take the mother and father and expose them to the outdoors and then you get generational exposure and then you're, then you're building in cohorts of people that enjoy the outdoors. So there's a number of those that we support as well. Um, and then again, just direct engagement, very specific, uh, working with partners and through DSC to reach that that segment of society uh, to take those messages that are bite-sized messages, you know, not packed with policy, but just understanding that, do you know that habit that, you know, hunting of whitetail has resulted in X number of habitat acres conserved, you know, and it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Tell me more about that, you know, yeah. those types of concepts. You know, that's a big thing. And I would have to say, uh, I feel like another big movement that we're starting to see from a lot of people that you talked about, they didn't grow up hunting. I mean, like I've, I've met people that are in their forties and fifties that they'd never held a gun, shot a gun, shot a bow, any of that. And I worked in a archery shop 2018 to 19 and into 2020. And, uh, I will have to say that that was the bulk of my customer that started to come in in Austin is because they saw, wait a minute, uh, I'm seeing all these butcher houses of these cows that are having like these breakouts of E. coli or whatever mad cow <laughs> disease and all this other stuff. I want to know where my meat comes and you're telling me I can go and shoot an animal and provide myself my own meat and know where it came from. So I had a lot of people that were beginning to come from that. And I love that y'all are doing, putting forth efforts to essentially, like you said, like cultivating experiences for folks where it's not just a dead end on your ROI. It's you're kind of creating this cycle to where people get more involved with it. And I love that. And I, we're seeing a movement in it, but then yeah. to combat that, I always hear buzzwords in the industry of we don't have enough hunters, um, hunters, you know, recruitment numbers are failing and this and that. And it's just like, how are y'all helping to combat essentially that negativity, if you will, about the industry? I think that's a great question. I think there's a couple of things that really address that both directly and indirectly is, is number one, you know, of course, working to get people experience and exposure to the outdoors. And if they have absolutely sort of any desire to be outdoors, the skills fall off the eyes quickly and they're ready to engage outdoors. I mean, that personal experience, you know, it's the sunrise, the sunset, the, the brim that the kid catches, it, it doesn't have to be taken an elk, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's an ultimate opportunity to do that, but it doesn't have to be something like that because that's not attainable 
for many or most people. Uh, now, those that, of course, that want to do that, wonderful. I mean, I'd love to see them on the mountain in Montana or Colorado myself, and yeah. I'm glad to meet them there. Uh, but, you know, there's there's those experiences. And, you know, I have a I have a 15 year old daughter myself mm-hmm. um, and I having the privilege of, you know, taking her hunting since she was, you know, walking behind me in the dove field to, you know, then hunting sheds. And now she's a, an avid and passionate hunter and probably shoots better than I do now. Uh, <laughs> and to, to take her around and, and hunt deer to, to bear all different kinds of things. Uh, and it's neat. And I only bring that up for the the context of conversation. And so I obviously live in the Dallas area and uh, the the young ladies and some of the young boys that I get to meet through her uh, that, uh, that have no idea whatsoever uh, about, uh, you know, really anything that's 10, 20 miles away from them. And it doesn't in that, and that's not framed around the fact that they wouldn't enjoy it. It just means that they've never been exposed. And we talk about, Hey, we're going to go, you know, shoot a rifle next weekend. Would you like to go or whatever it might be, or just, you know, go to an event that DSC is hosting, and it's very rarely no. It's just opportunities they've never had. So I think the willingness on a personal level and then at a large scale, people's desire to engage others in the outdoors is critical. The personal touch is, is huge. Uh, so huge. And, you know, this might just be a personal uh, opinion or viewpoint that I have, but something that growing up I saw uh, having that access and opportunities, you know, in the nineties and early two thousands, you know, I'm 32 now, um, there weren't a whole lot. I mean, they were kind of far and few between a lot of landowners kind of held it tight. Those deer, like, Nope, these are my deer. Or like I've got these leases out here that are hunting and it's kind of like they were, I don't want to say selfish in a way, but, uh, essentially they were in giving those opportunities to other people. And, and something that I've seen of late, probably within past five, 10 years, I'm starting to see more people being open and to that of giving more people an opportunity because everything we're talking about, people are gaining a better understanding of knowing that we need to keep this going and we need to give more opportunities to more people. And I love seeing that. It's, it's been neat too, to your point that the different types of engagement, um, and, uh, I know you and I have some past conversations about uh, sort of, I'm going to say, the younger entry into the, the hunting or outdoor community. Yeah. And my personal experience has been their eagerness to engage in policy. Uh, and obviously that is just warms my heart because, mm-hmm. you know, I I always say with a, with a ground on my face that, you know, hunters are so apathetic, uh, meaning that, and that's not a positive thing, meaning that if you know, if I'm a deer hunter and I see that the elk hunters out west are dealing with wolves, it's like, oh, that's not my problem. No big deal. That, that doesn't affect me. I'm not going to worry about it. Or, you know, I don't hunt uh, mountain lions with dogs, so I'm not worried about that. Or I don't trap, so I'm not worried about issues in New Mexico about the prohibition of trapping on public lands and all those things that people sort of don't have the vision to see that everything, all hunting things are sort of on the menu. It's yeah. just where are you on that menu? Mm-hmm. You know, predators are at the top. Grizzly bears, black bears, lions, wolves, all these things. And as the anti-hunting community, and unfortunately, a number of, you know, federal and state level elected officials, as they work through trying to check those things off the list, the others just move higher on the list. And so the opportunity for hunters to understand that when any type of that pursuit activity is is challenged, everything is challenged. Uh, And so we have to be smart about that. And so you know, back to the point that it's it's been really heartening to see that a lot of the 
sort of the younger generation are really interested in the policy side of things, meaning they're they're willing to go and advocate. They're willing to go to a state official or have a conversation with their mm-hmm. state rep or call their, you know, U.S. congressman and say, hey, I, I don't believe that this is the right thing to do for these reasons. And we've seen a huge response through our, our chapter network, which is all across North America now, uh, of engagement. And so that is a really uh, positive step that I've seen from this for this next generation. Muddy Outdoors is a brand that's been around for quite some time now. At Muddy, they recognize that the essence of a hunter transcends seasons where their gear is crafted to support the relentless spirit of the hunter year-round. For Muddy, hunting is not just a seasonal pursuit, it's a constant. And I, for one, definitely resonate with this. And this past year, I got some new Muddy box blinds that have been game changers for us down here in Texas. And I've been running Muddy tree stands for as long as I can remember. So if you're interested in learning more about Muddy, head to GoMuddy.com. One of my favorite knives that I used this past fall from the Deerwoods in Kansas all the way up to the Elk Mountains of Colorado was SOG's Ether FX. It's lightweight and compact design plus heavyweight blade quality made for the perfect knife for every use that I put it through this fall. I took it on every adventure, and if you're in the market for looking for that same lightweight, compact, durable knife that is going to do anything and everything you need it to, highly suggest you check out SOG's Ether FX. To do that, head to SOGKnives.com. And if you'd like a discount on the SOG Ether FX, use discount code HUNTSTAND10 when you're checking out. I want to take a quick second to talk to y'all about Stealth Cam and their all-new trail cameras, new for 2024. And the one that I specifically want to talk to y'all about is the brand new Revolver Pro. This is a 360 degree cellular trail camera. The Revolver Pro is a game changer. The power of six cameras and one sleek, innovative design allows you to cover more ground, capture more detail, and never miss the action again. Discover the future of outdoor surveillance with Stealth Cam's 2024 lineup of cellular trail cameras. To learn more, head to StealthCam.com. And if you'd like a 10% discount on the StealthCam website when checking out, use code HUNTSTAND10. We've got that discount code along with many more of our partners down below in the show notes. Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's like how I had talked with you earlier. Um, You know, you just, my generation, I felt like we're growing up, we're seeing this, and now it's kind of like, I guess I'm part of the millennial generation, I think. Uh, whatever that <laughs> I, don't, I couldn't tell you. I think I am. Um, but I'm starting to see all these things of what did Colorado just recently do? They delayed their mountain lion season because of yeah. whoever in the ballot box or whatnot. You know, it's, yeah. I see that. I see the thing with the wolves. Uh, what was it a year or two ago? Texas parks and wildlife. There was a big disgruntlement with mountain lion and cat hunting here in Texas that it was a big deal. And I'm starting to see this more and more. And I'm like, man, I just don't agree with the way that some of these people are coming at our hunting rights, because if I'm not there to fight it and protect it, and like what you're saying, if I look at Colorado as an example, like, Oh, I'm not in Colorado. That doesn't, that doesn't affect me, but that's a slippery slope. It is. Yeah. That. That willingness to say that doesn't affect me. You know, I'm a archery hunter. I'm not worried about rifles or I'm not worried about them taking a muzzleloader season away. And hunters being sort of numb to that is mm-hmm. really dangerous. 
yeah, it very dangerous, very dangerous, and it's scary to think about, and that's why I want to fight more for my daughter and her kids one day. And so going forward with DSC, I mean, and in your mind, what do you feel like encourage, aside from DSC's initiative, what would you personally encourage people my age, younger, kind of like to that, I think you said 40 40 year old age line, like what do you encourage us to do to help fight that good fight? Well, the first thing is I always tell this no matter where I'm speaking. And usually it's, it's not in these forms, it's not to hunters, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm just going to and say this anyways, because it's important. Buy a hunting and fishing license, wherever you live, buy a hunting and fishing license because you're supporting your game and fish agency. And those dollars yeah. are critically important, super important. And mm-hmm. then number two, be a member of some type of conservation organization, whatever that is. There's a lot of great ones out there. If it's National Wild Turkey Federation or Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation or Wild Sheep Foundation, DSC, there's a lot of great organizations out there, Ducks Unlimited, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason is those organizations most typically provide a more direct connection to engage and keep you informed of issues that are taking place at a state level and then maybe at a regional level, across the South, across the West, whatever it might be, and then ultimately across North America at the national level. And so those organizations, again, they provide a more personal connection to items and, and initiatives and activities of things that you might not have firsthand knowledge of, for example, like DSC, I mean, we have people on staff and or partners like the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation that we work very closely, that if there is something that comes up at the state level, we are notified immediately, oftentimes mm-hmm. in deliberations before something's even on ink on paper. Uh, we have knowledge of it, so we have the ability to engage. And then we will activate our members and, again, that respective state or region across the U.S. and say, hey, as a member, you need to have knowledge of this. And here's three speaking points. And here's your elected official in your area. Please send them an email. Please call them. Please let them know. And if you would like to engage further, let us know. And so those conservation organizations like that, and again, wherever it is someone finds a good home at, can really provide that elevated level of opportunity to directly engage. We talked about this a little bit before the podcast. You know, we have our passions. We love you know, we love chasing big animals, trophy animals. We love uh, filling the freezer with meat. So that's part of our why in all this. But you kind of you touched on this before we started the podcast. What's your main why? Yeah, you know, I again, it's it's really ingrained in me that land ethic. That's so important to me and my desire. And again, I saw that from a grandfather to a dad that took me outdoors every chance he could, probably to his own detriment of his opportunities, <laughs> yeah. but to take me outdoors. I'm eternally grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, and now for a wife that that came into the hunting community when we met, she mm-hmm. never hunted before. She wasn't anti, she just didn't have any experience. Yeah. Now again, she's probably a better shot than me, <laughs> uh, but she loves the outdoors. And now we have a daughter that does. And so my desire is to be able to ensure the ability for her and to your point, her children's children's children to know that they have a place to go enjoy the outdoors. If they want to hunt elk or white-tailed deer or ducks or whatever it might be so that they have the ability to do that Mm -hmm. and to connect with as many elected officials I can in my time here to make sure that they know the hunter's role in conservation. Can you speak on, and I'm sure you would know, um, what strategies do y'all have in place that are envisioning, you know, what future strategies or future steps are y'all taking to continue to ensure the next generation of hunters 
become more actively involved. We kind of touched on a little bit, but, um, you know, anything you can speak on that will essentially kind of maybe a roadmap y'all have in place to ensuring that future generation surpasses, you know, the efforts of the current generation. Yeah, we've seen a lot of engagement from our chapter partners that do this very well as mm-hmm. well. We have roughly kind of 20 chapters across across the country from really Wyoming in the West to all the way to the Northeast and then North and South as well. And we see a lot of those that have built a lot of really great programs that are directly involved in getting youth outdoors. In fact, we have a couple of specific chapters that that is their almost exclusive focus. And they've done so from uh, the traditional child to get them out of doors uh, to uh, handicapped children, uh, to those that are that are end of life children that are terminally ill. Uh, and so all different experiences there that are being offered and, and provided. And what we've seen is it's, it's obviously the experience to that family is tremendous, but offering those opportunities and then sharing that within those communities, the hunting community, most of those are at the state level. Uh, it really inspires others to try to do the same. And so you touch the life of an individual, clearly that's important. But then the message about that reaching broadly through the hunting community impacts positively many people that are inspired to do the same or willing to give dollars or willing to give an opportunity for that young man or woman to go out and, and hunt a white-tailed deer or mm-hmm. you know a turkey in the spring, whatever it might be. And so one door sort of opens 15 or 20 in these cases that we've seen, and then those 15 or 20 open two or 300. And so that's been a really important thing that we've seen that sort of success results in more success. Right. Uh, so we've seen that on the ground type projects of getting you know folks outdoors. Um, but then also from the congressional level um, of proactively working on policy issues that would restrict, uh, and if that's from uh, house natural resources and impact fish and wildlife service side, uh, anything that is restricted to getting kids outdoors, you know, you've seen these things that are really expanding hunting opportunities, mm-hmm. like in some of the eastern states that, that used to not have Sunday hunting opportunities. Well, when you're a child <laughs> in school, Saturday and Sunday opportunities are really important. And mm-hmm. kind of not to be overly simply silly here, but when you can only hunt Saturday, now you add Sunday, you just doubled your hunting opportunity, you know. So some of those kinds of things, uh, states that uh, encouraging states to to add more youth hunting opportunities, earlier seasons, you know, those that are working around with school simply, you know, holidays are, those kind of things. And some of those are just really practical, but they're true barriers to getting people outdoors. They are. And uh, I feel like something that's also helped aid in uh, hunter recruitment and education purposes, uh, social media and YouTube, like, we, yes, we know there's a dark side to both of those. But there's also a really good side. Uh, you know, I know probably a lot of Western hunters out there or people that are residents of Colorado probably didn't enjoy the influx of uh, applications that were put in for certain tags, you know. <laughs> but I see that as a bittersweet thing. It's like, man, it's awesome to see hunter recruitment numbers and things like that come from YouTube. I mean, heck, that's how I got found out about elk hunting that, oh, wait, you mean I can go out west? and buy an over-the-counter tag with my bow, and I don't need a guide and outfitter. I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a really big educational piece of that as well, and I think it's been a really good thing for our industry. Yeah, it's communicating with people, right, in the, in the form in which they use to communicate, you know, making things available to people. If it's outdoor opportunities or, you know, what you referenced earlier, Will, that, that fill-to-fork movement, I mean, that's, that's very real. You big. know, people that want to experience their own taking a protein so that they know that it's a clean quality source of meat, whatever it might be. We'll continue to use elk as the example, you know, that 
I mean, you even see it in some of the larger supermarkets here in the in the larger metro areas that, mm-hmm. that are doing those kinds of things now, which, you know, I sure I certainly wouldn't have thought that five or 10 years ago. Uh, so there's an embracement of that. And, you know, we support a couple of programs as well. Shane Mahoney has a wild harvest initiative, which is really looking to quantify the proteins of wild, uh, I would say protein, but it's more than that, you know, wild meat, uh, including fruits and berries and those kinds of things. And those data points are important for elected officials and the general public to know that the true human relies on natural food sources. If that's fruits, berries, of course, is, you know, far minor compared to things like, you know, deer, elk, and then the meat sharing index, um, you know, how much that one deer that you or I take that, you know, you're happy to share meat with the neighbor down the street or someone that wants to try venison and you're happy to give them some Mm -hmm. for them to get to enjoy. And then they say, Hey, I know I get to do that. Could you take me hunting next year? You know, those kind of things. And so, it really, again, sort of a direct personal engagement to the out of doors. Absolutely. You know, we've got a, a young man, his name's Zeke, that goes to our church. And actually, uh, his father is a big football coach, athletic director in this town, was a teacher of mine back in the day, lived down the road from my parents and I. And he kind of helped instill this. I mean, obviously, my father was there. He was the one who originally instilled passion for the outdoors and wildlife. But then I had him for a a science and horticulture teacher and he let me go down and I would catch perch and fish and put in these aquariums in his classroom so that we'd get to feed them. And he he kind of instilled this in me. And now I see his son. I look at that and I'm like, man, I'm looking at myself right now, looking at this kid. And I'm like, I'm looking at him like, how can I get him involved with what I'm doing here at hunt stand and you know, everything else? How can I get him involved to show him like, Hey, you can have a job like this, doing something cool in the industry to help promote what we love and hope to pass on for the next generation. So I'm kind of taking that on as a personal matter. Like, man, I want to show this kid so he doesn't have to take as long of a path as I did to get here one day. That's perfect. You know, when there's a personal connection, it makes a difference. You know, there's so many barriers to entry. There's so much national level research out there about, you know, what keeps people from going outdoors. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of those, there's, there's two primary factors, right? It's, it's cost either real or perceived. And then number two, it's not having any knowledge of how to get there. You know, yeah. not being willing, not even knowing who to ask the questions to, uh, you know, how to, how do you contact Colorado Parks and Wildlife, if you will, mm-hmm. or Division of Wildlife and understand how do I get an over-the-counter tag? Where can I hunt? What's National Forest? What's the difference in that? And Bureau of Land Management, all these things that you and I likely take for granted because we have an intimate knowledge of it. But if you don't, it's a mountain that seems too big for many people to climb. You know, it's it coming back to that, what you said, like we almost kind of take it for granted is I've had people that either I don't know or back in the day have bumped into them or known them from school way back. And they'll reach out to me like, hey, man, I want to learn how to hunt. I see what you do. Uh, how do I do this? And I love that. Like, I lo- it makes me think like, man. Uh, I guess people aren't as knowledgeable about this as I thought. And so it's, it, all these things have been just going through my head the past, you know, 12 to 24 months. I'm like, man, uh, I need to do more here to help people out. And I mean, that's part of what we do through the podcast and seeing what y'all do. I mean, speaking on this younger generation, are there efforts that y'all are pushing forward from a digital age to help promote this and educate more younger folks so like YouTube, social media, y'all starting to do more of that and get, uh, see the importance of it. 
Yeah, great question. So it's one of those things, again, that we have not stood up our own programs in that capacity, but rather mm -hmm. have chosen to financially support those that are stood up and, and doing that, right. you know, and educating in those ways. And so there's a number of those that are working in public school systems proper and some of those that are working in non-traditional ways, you know, that are working through the family connections, uh, then to connect, of course, to a parent or guardian or relative or whatever uh, and a child to the yeah. doors. And so. So, yes, we are sort of working in those in those channels to get people out of doors. And, and another thing kind of related to that that we've seen really successful in the communications is, you know, each year the DSC Foundation, of course, the C3 side of, of course, DS, DSC being the C4 side that mm -hmm. gives us the ability to advocate. But the foundation being the sort of the conservation focus from a grant fulfillment standpoint, when people understand and ask questions about the conservation projects proper that we support, uh, it really makes them understand, it helps them understand, I should say, the true dollars that go back into conservation. Again, in the purest sense of habitat work, if it's reforestation projects, like, you know, we work with Philmont Scout Ranch and a couple of grant projects every year from some of the timber thinning standpoint uh, and some of the just direct on the ground habitat management standpoint. And then you think of the, I don't know the number, the thousands of young men though, that go through Philmont Scout Ranch every year and see a DSC logo out there with signage that talks about timber stand improvements and how that impacts elk and provides, you know, X, Y, and Z increases groundwater recharge in the riparian systems and these kind of things. And so there's that very direct and then sort of very soft interactions as well, where people understand that, hey, this was conservation funded habitat projects. And this is sort of that the full cycle of how it happens, yeah. conservation funding. Yeah, that's that's a big thing, big thing. I know, I know we're running out of time here. So if folks want to become members of DSC, how do they do that? And what would be, I guess, your, your answer to those folks that ask, well, what's my money going to do by becoming a member? Yeah, it's a great question. That's a question that I would ask if I wanted to join an organization and spend some amount of money. Uh, I get it. And um, so they can reach, of course, they can go to the, our website, which is biggame.org. Um, and they can look at a, a listing of all the conservation projects that we support, what we're about, where we're working from, again, British Columbia to Washington, D.C. to east to west and all over the globe and things that we're supporting and how we're supporting the role of legal regulated hunting and conservation. Mm -hmm. um, and any kind of questions that folks would want to ask about, you know, where they should engage, how they can engage. Uh, you know, we have a dozen staff there at the office. We're very lean and mean staff compared to the efficiency and the role that we play all around the world. But any single staff there can answer some of those questions. And I'd love to visit with somebody about that. I have the privilege of doing that a lot. And it's fulfilling to me to get to talk about conservation and hunting and, and all mm -hmm. of that. And so um, I'd love that. Again, they can go to the website, biggame.org and, and uh, any connections there and shoot any questions my way. Love it, man. Well, you have any final parting words before we leave on today's episode yeah the only the thing that i would i would leave folks with is is don't watch an issue go by if you're in the hunting community now engage don't be apathetic head to the polls vote uh, and if you don't know how to vote what to vote on on a particular conservation issue again contact an organization conservation organization that you're a member of and they'll help guide you along the way it's 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 critically important that hunters go to the poll find a way to make a mark. That's right. <laughs> well, man, I really appreciate your time today, hopping on and uh, talking about all the things that we did from DSC and uh, 
how the younger generation can uh, get more involved to help take that torch when y'all are ready to pass it one day. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And thanks for what you're doing, Will. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. We'll have to do it again. I want to give a shout out to some of our fine sponsors and supporting HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. Started off, I want to thank Hawk Hunting, Hunt from Above, Tenzig Outdoors, Go Further, Hunt Longer, True Globe, When Brightness Counts, Halo Optics, Hunting Success Magnified, ABNX, Unmatched Quality, Zinc, A Champion in Every Call, Boss Buck, the most versatile and user-friendly feeders on the market. Evolve, reap what you sow. Cyclops Lighting Solutions, get out of the dark. New archery products, whatever your broadhead preference, NAP has you covered. And finally, Bloodsport, the bleeding edge of archery. To get a discount on products from the featured partners of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast, enter code HUNTSTAND10 during the checkout process. I'll have all these partners' website links listed down in the show notes below. 